Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. And our centering prayer is connected to our breath and it's prayed silently. And so on the inhale, we pray, gracious God. On the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's do that together. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. As we enter this moment, some of us with hope, joy, energy, creativity, optimism, others of us with fear, or anger, sorrow, depression, or anxiety, addiction, confusion, or just boredom. However we find ourselves in this moment, help us to see that you see us and you know us in all our complexity and all our contradictions. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray by the power of your spirit that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, that you'd wake us up to your grace, fill our hearts with your love and send us out to be your very hands and feet of resurrection renewal, wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, today we are considering a second-to-last beatitude as we go through these blessings that Jesus proclaims in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which comes from Matthew chapter 5. And again, these, bless- these blessings, these beatitudes, are not prescriptions like demands or commands. You need to go and start mourning more so you really can be comforted. You need to go make yourself poor in spirit. If things are going well, try to make them go really badly so that you can maybe have more access to the kingdom of heaven. They're not prescriptions. They're descriptions. They're Jesus opening our eyes and our minds and our hearts to a bigger 
truer reality that when it seems like life is at the end of the track and there is a dead end, that there actually isn't. It's there that you're accessing resurrection life. Maybe you're open to it in a new way for the first time. And so today we come to blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what's right, for doing what God requires, for pursuing righteousness, depending on the translation. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who take on personal damage, harm, because they're doing what's right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to begin, I want to invite up my friend Kathy Pham, who is a friend of mine and a personal friend of several of you in this room. Kathy is a minister with Urban Life, and so Urban Life is also a partner ministry to Renew San Diego. Jordan is involved frequently with uh, their youth activities, and what they do is um, come alongside youth in the inner city. It's hard enough being a teenager, just being it, right? It's hard enough being a teenager, let alone if you're living in a situation in which there are fewer resources and more pressures. And so a ministry like Urban Life comes alongside these youth with love and care and options and connection, and you start seeing people flourishing, but it's not easy. And so we invited Kathy to share a few stories from Urban Life. Welcome, Kathy. Good morning, Renew. So glad to be with you all this morning. So City Heights is roughly a mile away and is a beautiful place. And so in the three-mile radius of City Heights, there are over 90,000 people. And there are over 80 different dialects spoken. Crawford, the local high school, is the most diverse high school in California. And we are a very diverse state. So on El Cajon Boulevard, you would see a Mexican taco shop next to a halal store next to a Vietnamese restaurant. The nations are here. Yet at times, living in City Heights feels like persecution. 47% of the residents live below the poverty line, and we test below national standards in every category. And so, um, share with you the story. Um, there was a night, uh, it was after midnight, and I was in my room on my phone because I'm addicted, and I'm just on my phone, and I hear sirens go by, and uh, police cars speeding, going very fast. So I was like, oh, something's happening. And so I turn on the police scanner app, because we all have a police scanner app, and so I was like, what's going on? And, um, and as I'm listening to the app, they said that something's happening on Menlo, and then there's a crash. And I was like, Menlo? That's down the street from my house, and four different students live on Menlo. And so I started texting, right? So my fingers are going off. And, hey, how's it going? Are you okay? What's going on? And uh, it turns out one of my students writes back, and she's like, I'm not sure. Uh, I hear the police coming. And so um, another resource, I go on YouTube, I turn on Cop Watch. And so there's, there's all these resources. I turn on Cop Watch, and someone's there. They're recording the action, recording what's going on. And so it turns out this man, he took a car. I'm not sure what the background is, but he crashed it, and then now he's on the loose. And the cops are involved because they saw that he had a gun. And so uh, I'm texting my students, like, hey, this is why I'm watching this, what's going on. And she's like, I hear something happening in my backyard. I was like, oh, boy. And so um, I hear the cops chasing this guy. They're going down the alley. They're going through backyards. And I was like, man, this is intense. And some of my students haven't texted back. Turns out that guy crashed into one of my students' family's car. And... Um, 
and that this, as I think about the story, it's just like this, Ashley, is just a typical story of living in City Heights. You hear sirens, things happen, and it's just life, and what we do is like we communicate with one another, we make sure we're okay, and we see what is going on. And as I think about that, I also think that um, in the middle of all that, that God is in the midst, and he's blessing us, and he's giving us the gift of sharing our lives with one another in authentic community. And so one of my first students, when I first um, got involved in City Heights, one of my first students, he uh, met, uh, he comes from a broken home, a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect, and he uh, met someone that was also part of Urban Life, and she was undocumented, a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect. Her parents, um, they actually don't even live here. They just kind of dropped her off and hoped that she has a great future in America on her own. And as they met each other and as they're getting involved with Urban Life, they get married, right? They, they date and they get married, and I was like, that is just not what happens with young people these days. You don't get married. That's just the honest truth, right? And I believe that marriage is the modern-day miracle. Marriage is something that, that God's involved in, and he, he keeps them attached. And, and so they've been married for over seven years. And I'm like, yo, that's, that's God. Like, it's not like, oh, that's just a small thing. It's like, no, that's not what happens in our community, sadly. It's just a lot, a lot more brokenness. And so they're ending the, their damaged family cycles. And I also think of another student um, his name is Marco, and he invites friends to our gatherings, and, and he'll bring us one guy around, and, and that guy's just really friendly with the ladies, right, because girls are cute. And so he's just really friendly with the ladies, and I was like, hey, Marco, what's going on with your friend? And so Marco's just like, yeah, I know. I've been talking to him. I was asking him, Marco, a high school student, I was asking him, like, hey, bro, are you filling your void with just these girls? And I was like, Okay, having tough conversations. Okay, holding your friends accountable. And so that's just like the, the in the brokenness that we live in, it's just the images of and how we also see God. That's through relationship with one another. And so as God has blessed us tremendously, and we may not be rich financially, we are rich in relationships. And we're blessed, and the kingdom of God is ours. Thank you. Kathy, thank you. Thanks for sharing your stories. As, we, as you share the story of yeah, the student that you're texting with, and bad things happen and we come together and we hold each other up. Or we're all trying to find our way in this world and there are no real great maps all the time. And so we walk with each other and try to redirect each other. I get the chills right now because what I hear you describing is the kingdom of God. We always talk about how this world is both beautiful, it's created by a good creative God who blessed it and said it is good and created humans in the image and likeness of God and when God created the humans, it was the pinnacle of creation and God said it's very good, it's very good. But very soon you see this brokenness, this kind of this fractured aspect of rebellion and we're going to take matters into our own hands and we can't trust this God is actually going to look out for us and so we have to take care of ourselves and pretty soon it's like nuclear radiation across the land and we feel the effects to this day of theft and 
broken bodies and broken homes and everything else. Broken consciences and broken spirits. And it's in the midst of all of that that Jesus says in Matthew 5.10 at the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what's right, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In fact, it's the only promise of the Beatitudes that's made twice. Somebody noticed this in community group on week one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what God requires, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So there's something about admitting that you're spiritually bankrupt and you can't do it all all on your own, combined with, therefore, I'm going to trust and live into this kingdom, even though it feels like it's going against the current of the world. Does that feel heavy? It should feel heavy. And that's why he has to remind you, you yours is the kingdom of God. It's also the only two Beatitudes that are in the present tense. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. All these other ones are for you will. They're promises. This is saying, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. We talk about the kingdom of heaven on kind of a larger global level as right relationship. Relationships restored. On at least four axes. Relationship restored with God. To be known by the divine and to know the divine creator that loves you, surrounds you, and fills you every day. Right relationship with yourself. To be comfortable in your own skin. To be able to stand on your own two feet and look the world in the eye and be unafraid. Right relationship with each other. To be known and truly loved as you know and truly love others. And right relationship with the created world, the environment, the world around us. It's a picture of flourishing. But it's also a picture of flourishing in our own individual experiences. In um, Galatians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul, as I mentioned earlier, is writing to an early, early church, he talks about these marks of what it's like to live this kind of flourishing life. This is often called the fruit of the Spirit, or what comes when you're connected to this life force. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not the common currency of our world. We live in a common culture that says that Resources are a zero-sum game, and so we operate out of scarcity. I'm afraid that if you get more, it means that I'll have less. And so I actually silently am tempted to cheer when you fail and cheer against you when you're doing well. Scarcity, zero-sum game. I talked to a professor of mine 20 years ago. He said he was so competitive when he was getting his PhD that when somebody dropped their pencil in a Scantron test or something, he broke their pencil in half and threw it across the room. (laughs) And I've told other friends in academics that, they go, yeah, that sounds about right. We live in a world that just takes for granted that violence is a solution. Ironically, violence is even a solution for keeping peace. Mathematically, you can't put that on a chalkboard. It does not compute. And yet, when the big nuclear weapons started to come out, what did we call it? The peacemaker. Violence as currency for this world. Physical violence, 
or just verbal violence, the way that we treat one another in our attitudes. And Jesus doesn't distinguish all that much between them. He says the first person to even slander or gossip or curse somebody verbally or even mentally is already committing murder in their heart because thoughts are the seeds of words and words precede actions. It's all linked together. That's the currency of our world. And so if you choose to live against that flow, you should expect to feel like you're swimming upstream. You should expect persecution. Our author, who we're going along this book by Mark Scandrett, The Ninefold Path of Jesus, in our community group, and he talks about the cycle of violence using an often portrayed fable where it goes like this. One, one day a man goes to work and is berated by his boss. He arrives home fuming and upbraids his wife. She slams the door and runs from the house in tears. In the yard, she harshly scolds her daughter, who had been incorrectly playing, innocently playing. The girl takes out her anger on her younger brother by pinching him until he screams. Furious, the boy kicks the family dog. The dog chases and catches the family cat, biting it. The cat screeches and then hunts down a mouse, clawing its tail. Round and round it goes. The message is simple. When we are treated unjustly, we often transmit our pain to others. Evil perpetuates evil until someone dares to break the cycle. Or as one mentor used to say to me, hurt people hurt people. So as we are hurt, it festers and it makes us harder, more difficult, colder, more distant, more aggressive, or more passive, one depending on your temperament and personality, until something breaks the cycle. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus broke the cycle. But he didn't just break it as an example for us. He broke it as the power to follow him and do the same. On the cross, as he is being crucified, as he's being abandoned by his friends, being ridiculed by Roman soldiers, being called a blasphemer by the by the Jewish religious authorities. All of it is coming on to him and his response is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. On the cross, he's recycling the violence of our world into forgiveness. And then he says, pattern your life after me and I will be with you. But as you do, you should expect persecution for doing what is good, for doing what God requires. Some philosophers and theologians over the years have talked about living in the tale of two cities. St. Augustine writes about this. And one way to look at it is San Diego is the tale of two cities. The United States is the tale of two cities. Our world, by and large, is the tale of two cities. And it's the city of greed or the city of grace. The city of greed says you need to take what's yours. You need to look out for yourself It's a dog-eat-dog world, so you might as well be a stronger dog. And it dehumanizes you. There's a city of grace. It says, God has given me all that I need. God will never leave me or forsake me. I'm actually in the safest place I could possibly ever be. And so I can operate, likewise, out of a place of security, resiliency, buoyancy, hope, generosity. All the things we read about in the fruit of the Spirit. Christians are called to live in the city of grace, but we get spiritual amnesia. We forget. 
That's why we gather together to remind each other. That's why we gather at this table to feast together, to be fueled for the mission of following him together. You know what it means? Here's what it looks like. One way it looks like. It means you, you are creative and courageous in your career. Creative and courageous in your career. I saw this on Friday night when Greg Ellert put on an amazing faculty roundtable discussion at UCSD. Coming around the question of empathy and morality from a, is she a neurobiologist? Yeah, neurophilosopher, which is interesting. She's using the neurons to think about the neurons, but that's another thing. I sat next to a person who was part of the team that invented GPS. I mean, this, this was like when Greg throws a party, interesting people show up. But what amazed me, I had forgotten about this because I hadn't been in a room like that for a couple years with COVID and, and everything, how tightly strung and dog-eat-dog is just the word that comes to mind academia is. Everybody, and not everybody, a lot, the, the tone is posturing. There was actually someone who asked a very erudite question and in the middle of it apologized to the audience for not being articulate enough for his question. I mean, you just cut it with a knife, you feel it. Everybody's one-upping, are you a professor or a distinguished professor? I, you know, all of this. And in the midst of that, Jonathan Bowman, who's part of this church, is a professor at the University of San Diego, cut right through it. It was amazing with grace. He was holding court before this thing started, but used any of his conversational abilities to pair people up together introduce them, make connections. The only putting down he ever did was himself just to make a good joke. And so I talked to him afterward and I said, Jonathan, I want you to know I saw that and it inspired me. He said, thank you very much. I work hard at that. He, by the way, he gave me permission to share this conversation. So I have a question for you. I'd imagine that comes at a cost. He said, it does. Tell me about it. Well, when you carry yourself that way, and you're kind of walking in, these are my words, you're kind of walking into a street fight, but refusing to pick up a weapon, you're going to take shots from a lot of different sides. He said, it means that I have to make sure my scholarship and the things that I publish are doubly excellent to what I think I can do, so people take my scholarship seriously. He's working twice as hard so that he could advance less to bring other people in his orbit. It's amazing. It's not the fast track, but it's the rich and deep life. What does it look like for you to be courageous in your career? You know what else it means? In a world that's marked by violence, again, if you're just thinking, I haven't beaten anybody up this month, I get a pass on this, you don't, because violence is part of our mother tongue in our currency. It's what the summer blockbusters work off of, a lot of our literature works off of, read the front page of any newspaper, you're gonna find it, currency. And so you're gonna choose non-violence. Now, it's critical, and Mark Scandrett points this out, the order of the Beatitudes are critical. It doesn't start with this, and if you're a victim of something, it does not mean lay down in front of the person who's oppressing you and let them put their boot on your head. Because think about the order in which these Beatitudes come. What if the Beatitudes map, map a progressive journey of spiritual development? First, trust the creator's care. Then, 
lament what is broken, and wait for divine comfort. Affirm your inherent dignity and worth. Embrace your agency and power. Receive mercy and respond with compassion. Tell the truth and live wholeheartedly. Reach past differences to find common ground, and then surrender to suffering. The order is important. Only after you can affirm these realities can you confidently resist evil through nonviolence. The surrender response must come from a place of strength, confidence, and courage. It's creative. There's a place where just 30 verses later in, uh, in the Beatitudes here, in Matthew chapter 5, this is the famous turn the other cheek phrase, often misquoted. He says, you have heard that it has said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which Gandhi said only makes the whole world blind. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. See, it seems like he's saying, if you get punched, let them punch you again. If they want one thing, give... But actually, the nuance of it, and we don't have time to get into all of it, you have to see the genius of how creative this is. Because in an honor and shame culture, let's take the other cheek part. In an honor and shame culture, there are actually two ways to slap somebody. Slap them as a slave with the back of your hand, or slap them as an equal with the front of your hand. What he's saying is, if someone slaps you with the back of their hand and they're saying, I am above you, you are on the slave level, I am higher. If you turn the other cheek, it only gives them two options. If you're going to slap me again, you're going to have to use the open hand of, of your hand and admit that we're equals. Or you can choose to not slap me. Same thing with going to court, getting sued over your shirt, give them your tunic. Also, there were prescriptions against being able to do that. And in an honor and shame-based culture, it was shaming to, in our culture, depending on where you are, some would say it's shaming to walk around naked. In their culture, it would be shaming to view somebody who was naked. That's why they'd cover their eyes. Very different. So you have to get into that mindset. So they're saying, if someone's unjustly suing you for your shirt, take it all off and give it to them. It's showing how ridiculous this is. In the same way, if someone makes you go one mile, go the second mile. This, everybody knew that the Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish people, the Roman soldiers could ask for anything they wanted up to a limit that was put on them by their generals. And one, so a Roman soldier could walk into a Jewish home and say, make me a meal, and they'd have to make that person a meal. They could walk into a Jewish home and say, carry my backpack one mile, and they'd have to do it, but it was limited to one mile. Jesus is saying, if that ever happens to you, say, okay, sure, and I'll take it a second mile as well. It's going to get that person in trouble with their boss. And the point is, it exposes the whole system as a fraud and an abuse of power. It's creative. I love that being a Christian, following Jesus does not mean checking your mind at the door and just believing these things or not engaging with your world. It means engaging with your world with more nuance, more thought, and more creativity. What does it look like for you to embrace Nonviolence in a more creative way. Where are you tempted toward violence now? And again, it might not be physical, but it might be character assassinating somebody. It might be lighting someone up online. It might be slandering someone. And we're invited to a more creative way. Part of that more creative way is praying for our enemies. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. What? But here's the interesting thing. 
It actually sets you free. I met a guy yesterday at Know Your Neighbor, right out here. He had just become a Christian in the last year. He had a Bible app on his phone. He was listening to it. He was just excited about this whole new world and this experience he was having with God. And as we're sitting down having lunch together, he says, you know, it's really a miracle that I'm sitting talking to you right now. Mind you, this person does, he looks like the toughest person in the whole group, so I'm not sitting next to Mr. Rogers, okay? He said, I can't believe I'm actually sitting with you right now. I said, why is that? He said, I used to hate pastors. I used to beat them up. I'm going, okay, but just to be clear, that changed when you became a Christian, right? <laughs> he said, something terrible happened to a member of my family, and a pastor had done it, and I burned their house down to the ground. And that, that was the first time I went to prison. He said, now I've become a Christian, and I can't believe that I'm actually talking to a pastor sitting at this table. I reassured, once again, that this is actually a life transformation that's ongoing. And I marvel, I have the, again, I, I get moved when I think about the way that God is taking people who would previously have been enemies and making them friends and family. Pray for your enemies. Not only for their good, but for your good. I had a mentor who used to say, it is impossible to hold a grudge against somebody and pray for them simultaneously. If there's someone right now that you're holding a deep grudge against, try praying for them and see what happens. Not because it will change them, because it will change you. Now how do you access this? The short answer is, it takes courage. All of this takes courage. To live a across the grain of our current of popular opinion and action. You will, you will reach resistance. That's what Jesus is calling persecution. It takes courage. C.S. Lewis writes about courage. He says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. In other words, choosing to be forgiving, choosing nonviolence, choosing praying for your enemies, choosing being courageous and, and creative in your career, all of these things will take courage or you'll give up. Now, there's two ways to get courage. One is internal, one's external. Internal, I can do it. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. And gosh darn it, people like me, and I'm going to tighten up my belt and tighten up my bootstraps, and I'm going to keep walking. And if that works for you, great. But for most people, it doesn't work long until you get exhausted. But there's another way. To know that the strength doesn't come from you, but from without. I experience this whenever I'm with one of my two friends, either Brandon or Brian, and each of them in their own right is kind of a, a you know, one is a world champion Muay Thai kickboxing champion, and one was deployed in wild battles in war with the Navy SEALs. The point is, when I'm with them, I feel safe. I feel safe. I feel like I don't, no matter what happens in this room right now, we are going to be okay because I'm with them. That's just a little shadow. That's just a finger pointing to a much bigger reality. For a Christian to be able to say, no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay because I'm in the presence of the creator of the world. 
the never stopping flowing life force that will never give up on me, that would go to the point of death on a cross and even resurrection to rescue me. Jesus is the only one who actually did what was right always and was ultimately persecuted for it, even to the point of death. And in the resurrection he shows, in the worst persecution you can face, even when it seems like the lights are going out, the sun refuses to shine and it's game over. I'm just beginning. My resurrection power is at work in your life. I will never leave you or forsake you. When, it, when you can realize and remind yourself that you have access to that kind of loving power, you have a whole new resource to truly consider, blessed are you when you're persecuted for doing what's right for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Friends, let's walk together today and tomorrow with courage in this world, spurring each other on to good deeds as we reflect this sort of renewing love into this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would give us this power now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Send us out to renew the face of the earth. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.